forum at Holy Communion, a long-standing conversation about faith, life, justice, arts, culture. Each week, we will premiere a conversation on our channels, and then on the following Sunday, we join in the conversation with Q and A and the chance to engage on the topic. We're so glad you have joined us. Hey there, my name's Mike. I'm one of the priests at Holy Communion. This is the forum. And today I wanna to talk about Eucharist and sharing the common cup. We're at a stage in the pandemic where there is this possibility about what's gonna happen next. And we are governed by all sorts of things, by uh, health policy from the county, from the state, from the city. We're governed by a diocese, by a bishop, and we have our own local Holy Communion specific pandemic task force that are setting policies. But one thing that has been true for two years is that no one at Holy Communion has been able to receive wine as part of communion. And I know that there are a few people that are getting a little antsy about that, that, that are starting to feel like we need to get there. So I wanna spend a little bit of time exploring in this forum, the question of Eucharist and sharing the common cup, where we are, where we've been, the theology, the spirituality, and where I hope we are going. And you'll hear that I have a little bit of an opinion in this, but even as the rector, I know that I don't have the full say. So I want to invite you this Sunday, the 6th of March, between the two services at 9 a.m. If the weather is nice, we'll sit out on the front lawn on with tables and share some coffee. If the weather's not as nice, we'll still have some coffee outside, but we'll ask you to keep your masks on and come into Mitchell Hall, our parish hall, with our masks on. We'll sit around a table and we'll talk about how we want to take steps forward around communion. So this is an image of a chalice. It's a pretty ancient chalice. Uh, from the Byzantine period, the early Christian period. And I, I just want to note how much it looks like the chalices that we use at Holy Communion. It's, it's about the same size. You can tell that in the early Christian period, the gathered community was sharing from one cup. Many people would drink or would have their wafer dipped in the one cup. It's part of the way that we have done communion for a very long time. So. Today, I want to talk about Eucharist, and, and we're going to use a vocab word, probably a vocab word that was in your uh, 14th, 15th, 16th century European history unit. It's a word that relates to this question of what happens to bread and wine. And maybe you already know that word off the top of your head. Maybe you're looking at it at the slide, but that word is transubstantiation. This is a word that has been fought about. If you go to the Vatican, there's literally a mural showing a fight over this word. Transubstantiation, the word comes from Aquinas, the Thomist theologian. And the idea is that it's the most succinct distillation of what becomes the Roman Catholic position, that the substance of the elements changes, even though their accidents remain the same, which is to say the body and blood of Jesus are there in the wafer and the wine, even if they still look like and taste like bread and wine, Jesus is present. 
that they have been transformed, transubstantiated. In the period of the Reformation, lines got harder around Eucharist and churches got identified based on what they thought happened to bread and wine. The Baptist, the Reformed, the Calvinist churches taught this idea of the memorial, that what mattered was remembering the words of Jesus, remembering this story that we have from the Bible. Eucharistic prayers in those traditions tended to just be opening the Bible and reading what happened in the gospel or reading St. Paul's account. And that was the important, was the words that Jesus said, remembering them. For the Roman Catholics, it was the mystery, the magic, the, the power of the sacrament, the power of the church to make this happen, to call the Holy Spirit down, to, to cause the transubstantiation. It was a much more mysterious thing. And these positions became identifying positions. Catholics were taught you are Catholic because you believe that the bread and the wine become literally through transubstantiation, the body and blood of Christ. And Protestants were taught you are Protestant because you believe that that is a bunch of hocus pocus. Those words hocus pocus actually come from the Latin mass. And Martin Luther carves this sort of middle position, a bunch of Lutherans in our congregation, they might know of a word called consubstantiation. Martin Luther has this beautiful image of a, a blacksmith working at a forge and the iron gets put into the fire and then the iron gets pulled out of the fire and it is still an iron, but it is glowing hot. And that is Martin Luther's image for how Christ is present in the Eucharist. Not quite transubstantiation, but glowing presence. Episcopalians come from the Church of England, it's known as the Anglican tradition, and we are famous for fudging things. We don't answer. Now, sometimes that is called Anglican fudge. Sometimes we get made fun of for not having an answer. When we defend ourselves, we tend to say, we don't take sides in silly arguments that have as much to do with culture as they do with theology. The Anglican position, I want to mention two things about the Anglican position, two words that are I find really compelling. Anglicans don't take a side on transubstantiation. There are Episcopalians who believe in transubstantiation and Episcopalians that think it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo, often worshiping in the same pews. We have a position that is known, come to known as real presence, which is to say that Christ is really present. How you believe Christ is really present? The church isn't going to govern for you. As long as you believe Christ is really present. Could be the words being remembered, could be the elements. Christ is really present. Which means that we've got a little bit of breadth in how communion is celebrated across the Anglican tradition. Now, what's interesting is we end up looking a little bit more like the Roman Catholics starting in about the 1850s. A movement in Oxford kind of pushes us toward the Roman tradition, even to the point of furniture. We reserve the sacrament in the Episcopal church. Uh, there are churches that do it right in the heart of the altar, um, the way that you would in a Roman Catholic church. So there is this move toward more of a transubstantiation kind of position, but most Episcopal priests still would say it's a little bit different. It, it's This real presence is a little bit broader of a teaching. 
And it's not as invested in the culture war between Protestants and Catholics. It's invested in holding people together. Other Episcopalians would say it's a little closer to the Orthodox tradition. In the church in the East, they never had this big fight, right? There weren't Lutherans to contend with. And so Eucharist is thought of how Christ is thought is, is thought more as a mystery. We don't worry about what happens on the molecular level. Christ is mysteriously present. And there's something beautiful in that mystery. The other thing Anglicans tend to do is stress reception. That is to say, in a lot of Anglican theology, Eucharist isn't done until the people have received Eucharist. There's something about the community receiving the bread and wine that has to do with the transformation, not just of the elements, but of the community. Christ comes to us through bread and wine, but what matters is how we make Christ present through the week in the streets. There's a famous archbishop who says to a group of Anglo-Catholics, if you recognize Christ on the table, but you can't recognize him in the streets, in the outstretched hands of the poor, then you have failed to recognize Christ. This idea that receiving, the congregation receiving, is an important part of Anglican theology is a pretty important trend in the way that Episcopalians and Church of England writers think about communion. And, and frankly, that's part of why I, when we were in the phase of the pandemic that we couldn't have anybody in the church except clergy, um, I just said, we're not doing Eucharist. It's too weird to me to have Eucharist and then have most people watching it through a computer screen and very few people receiving it in person that the math didn't seem right. It, it didn't feel like a complete sacrament to not have people receiving. And so I just said, no, nah, we'll, we'll do morning prayer while we have to have the congregation only online. And it was only in September that I said, okay, there's enough people in the church now that we're going to live broadcast Eucharist. But I, it took me a while. And I think that, that has something to do with this idea of reception. I want to say a word about symbols. I just said something about my particular, where I tend to fall on Eucharist, this idea of receiving, this idea that the bread and the wine become food for the journey of faith, sustenance that helps us go and, and do the work of Christ out in the world. Symbols are a different thing than signs, my sacramental theology professor taught in undergrad. A sign typically just means one thing. We have a three-year-old in our house and he's learning all about signs and he can tell you that an octagon, a, an eight-sided red sign on the street, that means stop. He can't read the word stop yet, but he sees a stop sign. He knows a stop sign. A sign means just one thing. A symbol, Paul Ricoeur, the French, uh, the French philosopher and, and lots of sacramental theologians have, ta have taught, a symbol is richer than a sign. It doesn't just signify one thing, it points in lots of directions. So Eucharist is bread for the journey. It, it, it carries us along. It's sustenance for the building of the reign of God on earth. It's a shared meal, a celebration in community. It's a chance to bring Christ's presence to a hospital bed. Eucharist can mean so many things. 
And, and that's in part because we use bread and wine in so many ways, right? Bread can be a very simple meal or part of a very elaborate meal. Wine can be something you use to celebrate with a big group or something to relax. It can be something of comfort or something of fortification. Symbols are more than signs because they point in lots of directions. So part of what I want to say in this forum is I'm concerned that what's possible right now, or actually in our diocese, not quite possible yet, but what could be possible soon, it limits the power of the symbol of the wine. Let's talk about that for a second. So I hadn't actually heard this until I heard a presentation by our presiding bishop, Michael Curry. But Michael Curry, the first African-American to be presiding bishop, talked about his father coming to his mother's church for the first time. His father had grown up Baptist. He was licensed to preach in the Baptist tradition. His mother was Episcopalian. Mother, at the time, they were living in Chicago. Michael Curry's words, the segregated heart of America. And his mother attended a predominantly white church brought his, his dad, the man she was dating that she would marry, along with her one time. And he says his dad always told the story that he watched with intense interest when she went up to receive communion. He, being a Baptist, those times Baptists didn't receive an Episcopal churches, Episcopalians didn't receive Baptists, so he stayed in the pew. Nowadays, everybody's welcome at our table, right? But in those days, lines were drawn a little tighter. So he stayed in the pew and watched what would happen as the one African-American person to go up to receive communion, the woman he was dating that he would later marry, went up there and knelt at the rail. Michael Curry says, you have to understand this was the segregated heart of America. White and black didn't drink from the same drinking fountains. They didn't ride the same part of the bus. So he watched with intense interest when this black woman went up in this white church to receive communion. And he watched as the priest brought the cup to the lips of white person after white person saying, the blood of Christ given for you. And he got to the black woman and he said, the blood of Christ given for you. And he just kept going. Michael Curry said his dad said that in any church where black and white drink from the same cup, they figured out something about Jesus. That common cup can mean a lot. We've not always gotten it right. In the time of HIV AIDS, there were a number of churches that this is the last time we had a serious debate, a serious conversation about sharing the common cup in the church and the Episcopal church. I have clergy colleagues that talk about, especially in churches where there was a large LGBT presence, sharing the common cup became something that was difficult. It became something that was stigmatized. And there were some churches that started limiting the chalice or providing intinction-only chalices so that there were people that could dip their wafer in but be sure that they weren't touching or, or sipping from wine that people who were LGBT were sipping from. And some of those churches still to this day have separate intinction and, um, and sipping chalices. I had clergy colleagues that talked about their decision to start receiving at the end, you know, clergy in the prayer book, it says the clergy received first, then the congregation. And there are clergy colleagues of mine that back in the 80s and the 90s decided that they were going to wait 
until after their congregation received. And then they were going to go up to the altar and take that sip of wine at the end as a symbol of solidarity with their congregation, some of whom had just gotten news of HIV infection, some of whom were stigmatized for being a high-risk population. And the chalices, this idea of sharing a common cup, we've, we've run into it before, and we haven't always behaved our best. So you, you probably know the argument, probably in those same history books that talk about transubstantiation, you probably heard this idea that at the Reformation, churches like the Episcopal Church that started giving the wine to everybody, they were fighting back against clericalism. Vatican II in the 1970s, when the Roman Catholic lay people started receiving wine, that it was push against this idea that the clergy were special, that only the clergy got the wine, uh, that it was a push against clericalism, clerical centralism, right? Church, make, thinking priests and deacons are super important, and so only they merit the wine. I've been wondering about that lately. I, I'd love to talk with you if you've got any history background. I, I went back and I couldn't find in any of my history books uh, this question, but I'd love to know if somebody's researched it. I'm wondering, it's the medieval period, really, when the chalice starts getting restricted to the clergy. I wonder how much of that had to do with this high idea about how great the clergy were, and whether there wasn't a move to restrict the chalice that came from the bubonic plague or the Black Death or any one of those big epidemics that happened during the medieval period. I wonder if we haven't thought about the role that disease can play in our practice of communion. So let's talk about what's maybe going to be possible. Before Christmas, the bishop released a plan that allowed some of our churches to start receiving communion uh, in both kinds. And it involved little tiny cups. The bishop, it's not like in the Presbyterian where you get those big trays full of plastic cups that you prepare the day before or whatever. Uh, the bishop said you, you would have the cruets, the little containers of wine next to one chalice on the altar. You'd consecrate it all. And then the, the folks we used to call chalice bearers would instead hold these pitchers, these cruets, and they would pour for each person that came up an individual cup. Uh, one of the times that the diocese did this, they used little disposable cups. I wasn't there in person, I watched it online, and I have to say, like, the idea of using disposable cups for communion, it felt bad from an environmental standpoint, like, are we putting Jesus's blood in cheap plastic or paper cups in this time when we're really thinking about our use of resources? My friend John Stratton, who's the rector down at Trinity in the Central West End, we were talking today, and he said, for him, it gave him pause because he had been taught in seminary, he'd been very careful about what you do with the wine. I'm going to show you a picture in a second of the special sink that exists in a lot of sacristies of Episcopal churches. But he's like, and then I was throwing away a cup that had drops of consecrated wine in it. He felt weird about that. You might say, okay, we could wash them. Let's not do paper cups, Mike. Let's not do plastic cups. Let's not do disposable. The idea of trash cans next to communion feels really weird. Let's, let's wash cups. Let's be responsible for the planet. Okay, to those sinks. This is a picture of what's called a piscina. We don't actually have these at Holy Communion, but this is the first Episcopal church I've ever worshipped in that didn't have one of these. These are special sinks that are in almost every Roman Catholic church and 
every Episcopal church I've been to up until Holy Communion, our problem is architectural, our sacristy is on the second floor, because these sinks go straight to the ground. The sink you pour the wine into in most Episcopal and Roman Catholic churches doesn't go into the sewer system, it goes straight into the ground, even little drops. There are a lot of clergy that would use holy water to rinse out the chalice before it got washed out. At Holy Communion, our altar guild takes the chalice outside and pours the consecrated wine into the garden before they rinse out the cup. So this idea that we would just buy a bunch of cups and then there would be consecrated wine drops left in them and then we'd put them in the dishwasher, frankly, it doesn't honestly disturb me that much. For me, the reception is a big enough part of communion that I don't tend to worry too much, particularly about drops of wine. I worry about the symbol of throwing away cups. I worry about, but it wouldn't disturb me. But but I know that there are some in our congregation that come from more Catholic traditions. And I would wonder about how would they feel about it? We don't have all the same opinions. So do we want to make some people feel really weird? I don't know. There's also a volunteer piece. And this is where I recruit for the altar guild. Gene Parker, I'm on record. I'm recruiting for the altar guild. But in order to do any kind of plan where we have to have lots of individual cups, particularly if we're going to use reusable ones, we're going to need a lot more members of the altar guild. We're going to need people to help us set it up. We're going to need people to help us get it ready to run it through the dishwasher. It's going to take a lot. So if you really want to see communion in two kinds, I'm going to need you to sign up for altar guild. Just a disclaimer. Finally, and I'm I'm being intentionally provocative right now, but I, I think some of the way that we've taught this history of communion, this idea that we gave the chalice back to the lay people where it belongs, that before it was this you know clergy-centric thing that only the clergy received, and and so we are all do both kinds, is a little problematic. It leans a little too heavily into this like I have a right that is so much a part of our culture stuff right now that it just feels a little weird. How much is communion an individual experience? It's about what I experience on Sunday morning. And how much of communion is about the gathered congregation, about what we share? You know, like historically, there's been this developing question about is communion full communion if you can't re receive both bread and wine? And it has absolutely been answered by everybody across the tradition from Baptist to Catholic, that you receive all of communion if you receive one part of communion. That's been true because for pastoral reasons, for personal medical reasons, there's oftentimes people that can't receive both kinds. There are people that can't consume calories before a surgery. There are people who, because of their struggle with alcohol, because of their addiction, because of their decision to totally abstain from alcohol, they don't want to receive wine. And the teaching of every church that I've ever looked up is that one kind receiving just the bread, or if you can't chew receiving just the wine, is sufficient. In fact, most of what I can find is that the simple desire to receive, there are people that can't consume at all because of medical conditions, that simply the desire to receive is enough to receive the full benefit of communion. You have communed. 
So is it worth going through a lot of effort and energy and purchasing whatever we're going to have to purchase in order to do wine? Or is it worth waiting until we don't have to compromise? Is it worth marking that there's still not a way to do what we fully want to do? There's still not a way to share a common cup, to do all of what that symbolizes. Is it better to mark the incompleteness of where we are? I want to leave you with that question, and I hope you'll come on Sunday, March 6th, 9 o'clock to church, out on the front lawn, bring a jacket if it's chilly, or inside if it's raining. But let's have a conversation about what we want to do about wine and communion. I look forward to talking.